Did you know that relaxation is all in your mind? That's right. By applying various techniques of mindfulness, you can practice relaxation anywhere and anytime, whether it's at home, work, or at play. Welcome to Come Back to Your Senses Radio with host Leah Brenda Smith. Our program is all about recovering your common sense. Now, here's health and wellness specialist Leah Brenda Smith. Hello and welcome. I am your host, Leah Brenda Smith, and thanks for tuning in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio on Voice America Variety. And a warm welcome, a hello to the folks from Project Freedom Radio Network. And just so everyone knows, the archives are available 24-7 through Voice America Variety in iTunes or at my website, comebacktoyoursenses.com. You can also find me at Facebook at Leah Brenda Smith or Come Back to Your Senses Radio. Now today, our show is primarily about grief and loss and trying really to give you some tips on how it is that you can cohabit with this cycle of life, this natural cycle of life. And we will go through the what's known as the five stages of grief. And we all know that grief is an integral part of the human condition. All of us have lost or will lose people that we love throughout our lifetime. And grief is a natural result of those attachments of love that we make in our lives. How we deal with our experience has a lot to do with how we can put the loss into a broader perspective, which will allow us to continue to live despite the often consuming void in our lives from that loss. Grief demands the expression of powerful emotions. It's natural to look for an opportunity to tell and retell the events and the stories and memories and really our own inner reflections of our deep love for the person who has died. This is why it can be so much harder for people when you don't have anyone to talk with about how you're feeling. It's also true that some people are just more vulnerable than others in the throes of bereavement and have more trouble overcoming their grief. Often our view of the world and the goals and values and expectations that we have for ourselves have a lot to do with childhood experiences. For example, if the world that you grew up in was largely caring, with only the reasonable and expected struggles of childhood, well, then you're more likely to be optimistic as an adult and experience good things from the world. However, when someone's childhood has not been easy and free-flowing or compassionate, if there has been physical or psychological abuse, then as adults, there can be a tendency to be less trusting of the world, perhaps more pessimistic, and even more suspicious of the motives of others. Now, many people manage to overcome these problems and, as adults, appear secure and well-adjusted. However, 
when a person has had earlier traumatic experiences, the loss of someone close can lead to an intense recall of the traumatic events from long ago, which can compound grief with symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Grief is then complicated by increased anxiety, fears, and helplessness. And these individuals are vulnerable to additional problems during grieving because of the complicatedness of the whole situation. But there are myths in our culture that there's an acceptable time period to be set aside for grieving. Often you'll hear people say usually within one year as you go through all of the natural cycles of holidays and birthdays and anniversary. But really, this ignores the reality of what's true in our human nature. And what is really true is that each person is unique. Each loss is unique. And the expectation of a deadline beyond which you would no longer grieve is just not so. And it can add an extra burden on you if you feel pressured by others to be complete with your grieving after a year. It's kind of like blaming the person who is grieving for his or her suffering rather than trying to understand it or just being compassionate and just being available. Often parents say that they'll never get over the death of their child. They hold the memories far too dear to let go. And life goes on for them, but in an entirely different way. Many parents are still grieving years later, and some never fully recover or put the past behind them altogether. And we've all heard of stories um, with some marriages that break up over the loss of a child, or we become aware of other children in a family where they have lost a sibling, where parents have lost a child, and the family just doesn't ever seem to go on or find a new normal again. How we grieve, like how we confront a serious illness, is influenced by the attitudes of the society at large, as well as those of our own personal traditions. People from certain ethnic groups are apt to be more demonstrative in their grief. Or there's the other extreme of the stiff upper lip that is expected in some cultures, in which it's considered a sign of weakness to cry or show emotions in public, no matter how distraught one might be. And these attitudes and expectations can cause people to suffer in silence, to feel as if they're doing it all wrong, when in fact there is no right way to grieve. Therefore, there is no wrong way to grieve. Social attitudes are often different, even amongst families, regarding talking about death with young people. 
children and even teenagers, they may have many questions like, where do people go when they die? Some families answer the question by saying, Grandma's in heaven, or Grandma's with God, or Grandma is alive in your heart and in your memory. I really feel that it's a good approach to speak to children about death as straightforwardly as you can, obviously within the context of their age and whatever your own beliefs and traditions are, in order to help them to integrate the loss. Sometimes we think children are too young to understand, and so we have a sense or the wrong idea or impression that they aren't actually grieving. Now, studies of people going through grief show that the majority, they figure about 80%, get through it with the help of their families, friends, and clergy. However, it seems that about 20% need some extra help, either through one-on-one counseling or some kind of group support. And there are many organizations that are meeting the needs of specific groups, like the Widow to Widow program or Compassionate Friends that gives help to people who have lost a child, the organization In Loving Memory helps people who have lost their only child or all of their children. And programs have been started for children who have lost a parent to cancer or to AIDS. Grief counseling can encourage you to go over the details of the last days of illness, to talk about the sadness and the loss. People naturally go over these details many times as they struggle to come to terms with what has happened to them. Talking with a sensitive listener is clearly helpful. And this notion isn't exactly new. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, we hear the line that says, Give sorrow words. The grief that does not speak knits up overwrought heart, and bids it break. It is important to express your emotions, such as the sadness and loneliness. Crying and sobbing are a way to help you experience these feelings. Sometimes people are embarrassed by crying in front of others, and they may work hard to keep their tears in check. And through counseling, they're encouraged, encouraged to express, express the emotions, which is all part of what is referred to as grief work. As you recall meaningful memories of places and times, and counseling can help you to deal with the loss and to make sense of it in a way that enables you to move forward without your loved one. Either in individual or in a group counseling setting, you may be persuaded if your symptoms are um, 
severe or persistent to access other resources that can provide comfort as well, such as books or tapes, music, lectures. And the Internet is also a valuable resource, especially for people who are shy about face-to-face talking about their loss or would just really rather be anonymous. There's lots of ways that people can receive support through online resources. Research also shows that children and adolescents who lose a parent often have trouble expressing their pain both to their peers and to adults. They can be anxious and depressed and even develop behavioral problems. Programs exist to help children and the healthy parent both before and after the death. There's one program called Kids Express that's run by social workers to help children cope with the loss of a parent. And another one called Kids Net is for children who have a parent with AIDS. These programs help to identify vulnerable children and parents. And several studies show that children whose surviving parent remain seriously depressed, will obviously have more trouble. The support and care that a family receives after a loss is critically important in terms of how the family will adjust in later life. And now let's move on to the five stages of grief, which is a model that was put together by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And these stages include denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And the stages really are in no defined sequence per se. Generally speaking, individuals experience most of these stages, when they're faced with the reality of their impending death, and it also applies to survivors of a loved one's death as well. This hypothesis of the five stages of grief was introduced by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her book on death and dying, which was inspired by her work with terminally ill patients. Kubler-Ross was responding to the lack of curriculum in medical schools addressing death and dying. And she started a project about death when she became an instructor at the University of Chicago Medical School. This initially involved a series of seminars and interviews, along with her previous research, which led to the book on death and dying. Her work really revolutionized how the medical field took care of the terminally ill, and her five stages of grief have now become widely accepted. Her work with the dying continues to be updated as time and experience reveals deeper layers or issues 
related to grief and loss. In her later years, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross partnered up with David Kessler on a book that is titled On Grief and Grieving. And really, Elizabeth uh, saw this as her final legacy, one that she felt would really bring her life's work uh, really full circle. On Death and Dying began as a theoretical book, an interdisciplinary study of really our fear of death and our eventual inevitable acceptance of it. It introduced the world to the now famous five stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And the book that she wrote with David Kessler on grief and grieving applies these stages to the process of grieving and then weaves the theory together with the inspiration and practical advice, which was all based on Kubler-Ross and Kessler's professional and personal experiences. The stages really have evolved since their introduction, and they have also been misunderstood over the past three decades since the book came out. The stages were never meant to really help you sort of tidy up the emotions of grief and compartmentalize things, but rather they are responses to loss that many people have. And there is no, there's not really a typical response to loss as there is no typical loss. Our grief is as individual as our lives. Yet the stages are part of a framework that can really help us to learn to live with the reality of the one that we lost. They are tools to help us frame and identify what we may be feeling. They are not stops on a linear time line of grief. And not everyone goes through all of the stages, or certainly not in a prescribed order. Sometimes an individual will bounce around back and forth through the stages. Yet with the awareness of the framework, with the awareness of the stages, comes knowledge of really grief's landscape, if you like. And in that way, we can maybe feel better equipped to cope with life and loss and really to, I guess, surrender to the process of it and then allow ourselves to feel and think and do whatever it is that we feel prompted to when we are in that very deep, vulnerable state. Now we're going to just go through the five stages and let you know what they're all about. Anger. Let's start with denial. This stage of grieving helps us to survive the loss. In this stage, 
the world becomes meaningless and overwhelming. Often life makes no sense. Likely we're in a state of shock and denial, and it's natural to go numb. We wonder how we will go on, if we will go on, and maybe why should we go on? It's natural to try to find a way to simply get through each day. Denial and shock help us cope and make survival possible. Denial will also help us to pace our feelings of grief. There is grace in this denial. It's like nature's way of letting in only as much as we can handle. And then as you begin to accept the reality of the loss and start to ask yourself questions, you are unknowingly beginning the healing process and you're becoming stronger and then the denial may begin to fade. But as you proceed, all the feelings you were denying then will begin to surface. Anger is a necessary stage of the healing process. Be willing to feel your anger, even though it may seem endless. The more you truly feel it, the more it will begin to dissipate, and the more you will be able to heal. There are often many other emotions underneath the anger, And as you let yourself feel the anger, then you will be able to get to these other emotions. But anger is really the emotion that we are most used to managing. The truth really is that anger has no limits. It can extend not only to your friends, the doctors, your family, yourself, and your loved one who has died, but also to God. You may ask, where is God in all of this? And it is common to hear from people that after the loss of a loved one that they feel that loss of their sense of their connection with God. But clearly underneath the anger is pain, your pain. It's natural to feel deserted and abandoned. You know, we live in a society that often fears anger, even though anger can be a strength, and it can also be an anger. I'm sorry, it can also be an anchor. Anger can be an anchor that can give temporary structure to the the vagueness or the nothingness of the loss. Some people describe that at first grief feels like being lost at sea. There is no connection to anything. Yet when they get angry at someone or something, maybe a person who didn't attend the funeral, or maybe a person who isn't around, 
or someone who is maybe acting differently now that your loved one has died, suddenly, suddenly you have a structure. You're, you focus your anger towards them. And the anger acts like a bridge over this open sea. A connection from you to them. Sometimes it gives people something to hold on to. And a connection that's made from the strength of anger can, for some, feel better than nothing at all, than just swimming in a sea of grief. We usually tend to know more about suppressing anger than feeling it. And clearly, our anger is just another indication of the intensity of the love that you felt for your loved one that you lost. So we talked about denial and anger, and now bargaining. Before a loss, it seems like you'll do anything if your loved one would be spared. Please, God, you bargain. I'll never be angry at my wife again if you just let her live. And after a loss, bargaining may take the form of a temporary truce. What if I devote the rest of my life to helping others? Then can I wake up and realize that this has all been a bad dream? We can become lost in a maze of if only or what if kinds of statements. Clearly, we want life returned to what it was. We want our loved one restored. We want to go back in time, find the tumor sooner, or recognize the illness more quickly, or stop that accident from happening. If only, if only, if only. Guilt is often a bargaining's companion. The if onlys cause us to find fault in ourselves and what we think we could have done differently. We may even bargain with the pain. We will do anything not to feel the pain of this loss. It's natural to want to do anything, to not have to feel that depth of pain. Often, often we remain in the past, trying to negotiate our way out of the hurt. Sometimes people think of the stages as lasting weeks or months. They forget that the stages are responses to feelings that sometimes last minutes or hours. As we flip in and out of one feeling and then another feeling and then another, we do not enter and leave each individual stage in a linear fashion. We may feel one then feel another stage, and then back again to the first one, and again and again as we navigate through our process of grief. 
and then depression. After bargaining, our attention moves directly into the present. Empty feelings present themselves. And grief, grief can enter our lives on a deeper, a deeper level, deeper than sometimes we ever imagined. This depressive stage feels as though it will last forever. Yet it's important to understand that this depression, this depression from grief is not necessarily a sign of mental illness. However, it is an appropriate response to a great loss. Often during this stage, people will withdraw from life. They'll feel that they're left in a fog of intense sadness, wondering, and wondering perhaps if there's any point in going on alone. Or in depression, people will think, why go on at all? But depression after a loss is too often seen as unnatural, as a state to be fixed or to be helped or something that people should snap out of. The first question really to ask yourself is whether or not the situation you're in is actually depressing. The loss of a loved one is very It's a very depressing situation, and depression is a normal, a natural, and an appropriate response to this type of loss. In ways, you could think that to not experience depression after a loved one dies would maybe be more unusual or more uncommon. Yet still, Either experience is normal if it's what your experience is. When a loss fully settles into your soul, the realization that your loved one didn't get better this time and is not coming back is understandably depressing. Grief is a process of healing. And depression is one of the steps along the way. And then in Kubler-Ross's model, the stages, the last one is acceptance. And often this is confused with the notion of being all right or being okay with what has happened. And this is not necessarily the case. Many people don't ever feel okay or all right about the loss of a loved one. Yet this stage is really about accepting the reality that our loved one is physically gone and recognizing that this new reality is the permanent reality is the new normal. We'll never like this reality or make it okay necessarily, but eventually we we will accept it. We learn to live with it. And 
As I said, it becomes the new norm. We recognize that we must try to live in the world where our loved one is missing. And in resisting this new norm at first, many people want to maintain life as it was before the loved one died. But in time, through bits and pieces of acceptance, however it is that we see that, we cannot maintain the past intact the way that it was. It has been forever changed, and we must readjust. We must learn to recognize the changes in roles, to reassign them to others or to take on some of the roles or tasks of our, that our loved one used to do by ourselves. And in families there is a reorganization that naturally happens. And finding acceptance may be just having more good days than bad days for some people. And as we begin to live again and enjoy our life, we often feel that in doing so, sometimes people feel that they're really betraying their loved one. Clearly, we can never replace what has been lost, but we can make new connections, new meaningful relationships, and new interdependencies with others. Instead of denying our feelings, we listen to our needs. Sometimes we move, we change, we grow, we evolve. And we may start to reach out to others and become involved in their lives. We may reinvest in our friendships in a new way and reinvest in our relationship with ourselves. We begin to live again, but clearly we cannot do so until we have given grief its time. Kubler-Ross originally applied these stages to people that were suffering from terminal illness. And she later expanded the theoretical model to apply to any form of catastrophic personal loss, a job income, or freedom. And some of these losses include significant life events, like the death of a loved one or a major rejection, the end of a relationship or a divorce, drug addiction, incarceration, the onset of disease or chronic illness, for some, an infertility diagnosis, as well as other types of tragedies and disasters. Kubler-Ross's model can be used for multiple situations where people are experiencing a significant loss. I'm just going to outline some different situations to show you how you can apply this model. And these are just some of the experiences that Kubler-Ross wanted her model to be used for. 
that as well. At times, people that are grieving will report that they are going through more stages than are outlined in Kubler-Ross's model. This is natural, as your grief is as unique as you are. And the model is just that. It's just a model. It's just a reference point, not a prescription that must be followed in order to heal. I'll just take you through a couple different types of scenarios just to give you a sense of what these stages might look like. We'll use the example of children that are grieving in a divorce. In denial, children might feel the need to believe that their parents will get back together or that they'll change their mind about the divorce. You know, as an example, mom or dad will change their mind. In the anger stage, a child might feel the need to blame someone for their sadness and loss. An example would be, I hate my dad for leaving us. In bargaining, the children feel as if they have some say in the situation, if they bring a bargain to the table. And this helps them to keep focused on the positive that the situation might change and less focused on the negative the sadness that they'll experience after the divorce. So an example would be, if I do all of my chores, maybe mom won't leave dad. And in the stage of depression, this involves the child experiencing sadness when they know there's nothing else that can be done and they realize that they can't stop the divorce. The parents need to let the children experience this process of grieving because if they do not, it will only show their inability to cope with the situation. As an example, I'm sorry that I can't fix this situation for you. And then acceptance, which doesn't necessarily mean that the child's completely happy again, but the acceptance is just about moving past the depression and starting to accept the divorce. The sooner the parents start to move on from the situation, the sooner the kids will begin to accept the reality of it. And then give an example of the stages when the grief is about a breakup. In the denial, the person being left is unable to admit that the relationship is really over. They may try to continue to call the person when the person wants to be left alone. And then when the reality sets in that the relationship is over, they move on to the anger phase. It's common to demand to know why they are leaving. This phase can make them feel like they're being treated unfairly and it may cause them to become angry at people close to them who may want to support them through the breakup. And in bargaining, after the anger stage, one may try to plead with the former partner by promising that whatever caused the breakup will never happen again. They may say, I can change. Please give me a chance. And depression... 
Next, the person might feel discouraged that the bargaining plea did not convince their former partner to change their mind. This might send the person into the depression stage and can cause a lack of sleep, decreased appetite, and really their ability to concentrate on other aspects of their life. And then in acceptance, moving on from the situation, and the person is the last stage. The person accepts that the relationship is over and begins to move on with their life. Now, the person might not be completely over the situation, but they're done going back and forth to the point where they can accept the reality of the situation. Now, I'll give another example here in grieving in a situation where there's substance abuse. And in denial, people feel that they do not have a problem concerning alcohol or other substances. Even if they do feel as if they might have a small problem, they believe that they have complete control over the situation and can stop drinking or doing drugs whenever they want. You might hear people say, I don't have to drink all of the time. I can stop whenever I want. And in the bargaining This is the stage that substance abusers go through when they're trying to convince themselves or someone else that they're going to stop abusing in order to get something out of it or to get themselves out of trouble and may say things like, God, I promise I'll never use again if you just get me out of this trouble. And in the anger stage of substance abusers relate to how they get upset because they have this disease of addiction or are angry that they can no longer use drugs or alcohol or some other substance. And some of these examples might include, I don't want to have this addiction anymore. This isn't fair. I'm too young to have this problem. In the stage of depression... Sadness and hopelessness are important parts of the depression stage when dealing with a substance abuse. Most abusers experience this when they're going through the withdrawal stage of quitting their addiction. And it's important to communicate these feelings as a process of the healing. And then with acceptance... With substance abusers admitting that they have a problem, it's different really than accepting that you have a problem. When you admit you have a problem, it's more like likely to occur in the bargaining stage. But accepting that you have a problem is when you own that you have a problem and then start the process to resolve the issue and to recover So as mentioned before, Kubler-Ross claimed that these stages don't necessarily come in order and not all the stages are experienced by all patients. She stated, however, that a person will experience at least two of the stages and often people will experience several stages kind of like in a roller coaster effect, switching between two or more stages and returning to one or more several times before working it through. 
And generally, it seems that women are more likely than men to experience all of the five stages of grief. However, Kubler-Ross hypothesized that there are individuals who struggle with death until the end. And some psychologists believe that the harder a person fights death, the more likely they will be to stay in the denial stage. If this is the case, it's possible that the ill person maybe will have a more difficult time with their death. Yet other psychologists state that for some people, not confronting death until the end is a positive and adaptive approach, which really shows us again that each experience is individual. And grief communication occurs in grief-stricken people through their emotions, actions, and their words. And Kubler-Ross played, she really placed a lot of emphasis on communication when a person is approaching death and is going through the five stages of her model. She believed that a person wants to review their life the illness they had, and their imminent death. When a patient and a physician can discuss this courageously and candidly, it's often thought that a good death will be possible. So this model and her thoughts are influential to healthcare providers and provides guidance to approaching and interacting with people that are experiencing grief. Now, we're all clear about grief having an effect on our physical health. It causes profound disruption of our biological rhythms. Our hormones and immune system are affected as evident by the loss of sleep and appetite reduction and weakness. And, you know, many people handle grief well on their own, yet some have more difficulty and struggle with it. And most people will benefit from using one or more sources of available support. But clearly the majority of people who grieve recover to go on with their lives They are often altered and radically changed by the experience, but they find a way to continue to face the future. Just remember, it's not about the time frame or outside expectations. Grief is a unique experience for each human being. Essentially, really, there are as many ways of grieving as there are ways of loving. The two seem to really be intrinsically linked. The death of a beloved one is always difficult, and your reactions and the length and the breadth of your grief will depend really on two major factors. Your reactions will really depend on your relationship with the person and sometimes the circumstances surrounding the death. 
When death is from a terminal illness, it's often preceded by a long period of time when both the person who is ill and the caregiver or caregivers recognize that death is likely the likely outcome, even though at the same time people are often trying to deny it. So this period is sometimes called as a time of anticipatory grief. However, no matter how clear the outcome is and how prepared one believes one is, the actual death somehow comes as a surprise. People might say, I didn't expect it so soon. I was still hoping for the best. I can't believe that it really happened. I know for myself, I went through a very conscious a conscious uh, experience of anticipatory death really started a couple years before the death of my dear old dad. There was a Luther Vandross song on the radio at the time called Dance With My Father. And every time I would hear this song playing in the car while I was driving, I would stop, stop at the side of the road I'd pull over. And I would just allow myself some time to grieve while I sang the song. I sang along and wept tears of anticipatory grief. And the death, although still very traumatic for people when they have had anticipatory grief, and is still devastating when it comes, it's not as big of a shock as sudden loss. You might have the opportunity to complete unfinished business with a dying person, such as saying, I love you, or I forgive you, or even just to be able to say goodbye, because you start grieving earlier, and sometimes you're able to recover sooner. And sudden loss is really a catch-all phrase that applies to many different circumstances of death. They all were unexpected and may cause you to go back into shock or to be overwhelmed by the suddenness of the tragedy. But it may take much longer to accept the reality, and so the grief process will take longer when there is sudden death. And even though it was a sudden death, you still go through the fairly normal grief experience. Sometimes it might become a complicated grief, Sudden loss can occur during, uh, due to a trauma, or a heart attack, or a stroke, or even an accident where the person dies instantly. And that is certainly a, uh, the shock of sudden loss can be profound, and that stage of shock can last for a long time, as I certainly experienced when I was a, a teenager and my family went through the sudden death of my mother. And then there is what's referred to as complicated grief. And this is when the grieving process does not progress over time as it should. The intensity of the feelings and the length of time is severe and prolonged and may interfere with your ability to function. You may even fall into a true depression or anxiety disorder. And the trademark of complicated grief is that the thoughts, reactions, and behavior do not change or improve as time goes on. Most people know when they're stuck 
in a grief that will not resolve. Complicated grief usually will not conclude on its own and requires the help of a professional counselor or a team of professionals to help you resolve it and move through it. There are some situations that tend to create a complicated grief, not always, but often. These situations could be violent death, where there's homicide or suicide or AIDS or multiple loss, as in a, a car crash, or loss where you might feel responsible in some way for the death, the death of a child, the loss of a parent when you are a child yourself, people that experience miscarriage or stillbirth or abortion, and deaths involving legal proceedings or deaths that are very public in the media. Complicated grief can also occur when an individual is already living with and being treated for a mental health issue that existed prior to the experience of the grief and or the loss. You know, although it's, it's natural to think of grief and loss in terms of human life, and we certainly spent a good portion of the show today focused that way, but we all have other types of potent life experiences that we may feel the need to grieve. And as we go through these experiences, we may find ourselves going through the five stages of grief that Kubler-Ross gave us the framework for. And we may go through this related to these other types of losses, like uh, job loss, or, or when a person has an esteemed position, it's natural to feel the loss of identity or esteem after that an accident that leaves you disabled or disfigured can also be a all-pervasive kind of loss. At head injury where you sustain cognitive deficits, it can affect your sense of yourself, your confidence, and your relationships. Some people never get over the loss of their youth or uh, their first love or even their innocence. And any type of chronic illness or chronic pain that results in a loss of permanent independence. Loss of an important friendship can be hard, really hard to bear. Or even what we refer to as empty nest syndrome. It's a huge loss for many parents and can be have an a even larger impact on single parents who are left alone and don't have a partner. Retirement for some people is devastating, and it's one of the greatest losses of their life. Or even when people lose their home in a fire or from, because of some financial uh, crisis in their life. Divorce of a family member can bring the loss of extended family members. So there's all these other types of experiences where we also experience deep loss and deep grieving. A loss journal can be extremely helpful if you list the major losses of your life and ask yourself the deeper questions of where you are with your grief work from your life. <laughs> 
Sometimes people discover that unresolved grief is stopping them from moving towards their deeper goals in life. So really, just to be cautious to not buttonhole yourself or somebody else into being predictable with these stages of grief that you need to fit into them or you need to make yourself match the, a prescription. The way an individual grieves from one loss to another is unique and specific to that time in their life and that specific loss. Grief is an organic process of living and loving and loss that becomes individuated each time somebody experiences it. So I hope you've found something useful in today's program, and I'm always grateful to be able to bring you information about these subjects that we speak about every week. I'm your ever-grateful host, Leah Brenda Smith, and I thank you for tuning in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio. And until next time, I encourage you to relax and enjoy your life. you've enjoyed our program today and perhaps have found some new techniques that you can apply to your daily life thank you for tuning in to come back to your senses radio please join leah brenda smith again next thursday at 1 p.m pacific time 4 p.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel we'll see you next week